Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. We've sung about, and we're going to read about, uh, courageously facing the suffering that is so often a part of the Christian life. Uh, and the minute you mention that word, suffer, uh, most people would prefer to, uh, to opt out. Uh, we do not want to suffer. Uh, and yet suffering is a, is a vital part of the Christian experience. As a matter of fact, we're going to demonstrate this morning, Peter does, and of course it's uh, also in the writings of Paul and other places, that suffering is really good for us. Uh, it, it helps us. There was a missionary traveling the United States years ago. I read about it. I don't remember his name, but he was from a part of the world that most of us wouldn't even uh, know existed. Uh, he had ministered under some of the most difficult circumstances that anyone could ever imagine. And as he was preparing to leave to go back to his homeland, he was asked about American Christianity, about the American church. What do you think of the American church? And he said, well... He said, I guess to sum up my thoughts, the American church has far too low a view of suffering. We don't like to suffer. The thought of suffering scares us. Uh, and of course, our God knows that. And so throughout the scripture, over and over and over again, we are reminded that we don't have to be afraid. Matter of fact, we're commanded not to be afraid. In John 14, 1, Jesus said to his frightened disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, and that, that verse or that phrase could be translated, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Now they were afraid because he had begun to explain to them that he was going to be leaving them. He was going to return to his father. Uh, they didn't understand exactly what all that meant. And when he began to talk about the specifics of his death on the cross, they, they really didn't understand that or even want to, to hear it. But this thought of being away from him, or him being away from them, and further, the thought of carrying on this ministry that he had trained them for, equipped them for, called them to, without his presence, was even more frightening still. And so it's in that context that he says, stop being afraid. But I'm thankful that that wasn't where he ended his comments to them. He went on in that passage of scripture to tell them how or what it was that would overcome their fears. And he simply said this, have faith in God and have all faith in me also. So to overcome our fears, according to Jesus in John chapter 14, we are to be a people of faith. Faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in God's word, faith is what will overcome our fears. And of course, we need to know what that means, right? What does that mean? How can faith overcome our fears? If we were to turn there, and we're not going to do it, but if you turn in the ESV to uh, John chapter 14, uh, the word actually reads in our English translation, believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, that's the same Greek word for faith, so I translated it faith as I presented it this morning. Have faith in God, have faith also in me. And, and belief or faith in the biblical sense is not simply the acknowledgement or the acceptance that something is true. I think sometimes that's what we, we let ourselves believe, that, that to believe in something 
is to acknowledge its reality, its, its truth. Uh, but biblical faith, biblical belief is, is much more than that. It begins with that. There must be that acknowledgement of truth, that acceptance of truth or reality. But biblical faith moves us beyond the simple acceptance of truth to acting upon the truth. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. The way that you will overcome your fears is by continuing to live in light of what you know to be true. I've told you the truth. You've heard me preach. You've seen me perform miracles. You've, you've, you've gotten to know me. You are more familiar with my life, my attitudes about things, my actions than any other people upon the earth. Live in light of that truth. Have faith in me. Take me at my word. Live in light of what you know to be true. And let me tell you, it'll overcome your fears. That's what Jesus would say to us today. So faith is not simply acknowledging or accepting something is true, but it's acting upon that which we know to be true. In our text this morning, Peter is going to share some truths that must also be acknowledged and some actions that must be taken if we are to effectively face our fears in the wild. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. As I mentioned, if you don't have a Bible, I believe the words are going to be on the screen here at front. You can follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, there's that word, suffer. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. In other words, have no fear of those that might bring suffering upon you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's probably the best known verse in this passage. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the, that for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, and this is, this is where the suffering comes from, so that when you are slandered, spoken evilly of, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then verse 17 says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil, and of course implying that it may just be God's will for you to suffer even for doing good. Let's pray and we'll take a look at these verses together. Father, we thank you today for these words of encouragement. And Lord, I thank you for the, the honesty with which you give us your word, Lord. You, uh, you do not lead us down uh, a, a path Lord, uh, without telling us the truth, Lord, you, you have made it very clear that for those who determine to follow Jesus, there will be suffering, sacrifice, perhaps persecution, oppression, even death for some. We thank you, Father, for the lives that you have called us to. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen our hearts this morning to face this life that you have called us to with courage, Lord, knowing that there will be trials, knowing that there will be difficulty, hardship, tragedy, suffering. But help us, Father, uh, as we learned last week, to love this life because it's the life that you have given us in your son, Jesus, but also to face our fears, Lord, with courage, uh, with confidence, knowing that as we sang just a moment ago, you are, you are always with us. 
the armies of the Lord uh, are by our side so we can know that we are never alone, never on our own in this battle. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Peter says that there are some things that we must believe and there are some actions that we must engage in if we are to effectively face our fears uh, in the wild. And he asked this rhetorical question in verse 13. And of course, the answer to this question is, is no one, of course. That's why it's a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? No one. No one's going to harm you in that, uh, in that context. Uh, but it implies that you are zealous for what is good. And so that's the question I want to kind of confront you with today. Is there a passion for goodness that is evident in your life? Do others see in you? And again, the only way they're going to see this in you is through the things that you say and through the, the things that you do, all right? Is there a passion for good, for goodness, a zealousness for what is good in your life. That, that word good speaks of, of generosity. It speaks of unselfishness, kindness, thoughtfulness, and, and, and all of that in the context of, of how we interact or relate to those around us. So if you want to be viewed as a person, person who is passionate for, for goodness, then these qualities or characteristics should be true of you. Peter has already said that, uh, again, if, if he, we were to ask him, what, what does it mean to be zealous for those that are good? We just back up a few verses, and it means that we will be uh, people who have unity of mind. In other words, agreeableness. We'll be sympathetic. We'll love one another. We'll be tenderhearted. We'll be humble people. We're, we won't be vengeful or deceitful. Um, but on the contrary, we'll be people who bless others, even those uh, who may not seem to deserve our blessing. We'll be those who seek and strive for peace. This is the goodness that we are to be zealous for. Again, this eager, enthusiastic pursuit. And really that word zealous can even mean a single-minded pursuit. Uh, we are to be a people who, who just zero in as far as living our lives on what is good, determined to think what is good and right, to do what is good and right, to be a people who are good uh, as far as we can be good. So there must be this passion for goodness. And what Peter says here, again, and he's saying it to a people who are already beginning to experience some trouble in life because of their faith in Christ. They are being ostracized Socially, uh, some have been rejected by their families because of their, their, their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so they're already beginning to experience this. And what he says here is that those who live in this manner, who are, who are zealous for what is good, will, for the most part, be welcomed and honored among society. And of course, that's true today, right? If we are people zealous for what is good, in most civilized societies, we'll be welcomed. Uh, People won't have a problem with the way that we live. However, Peter is quick to remind us that suffering for doing good is always a possibility. Even if you do suffer or should suffer for righteousness, sake, you'll be blessed. So 
living this life of, of zealousness toward the good, for the most part, will prevent us from the suffering that characterizes the lives of those who have no zealousness for good. But as we know, and as the Bible teaches, as Christians, we will suffer for our faith. It's a, it's a possibility, uh, and, and most of us have probably already experienced it to a certain degree. Paul told Timothy this. He said, indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, so Paul makes no bones about it. If you, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ, you're going to experience some persecution. You can just, you can just count on it. And, of course, there's the example of Jesus Christ himself, who the Bible says went around doing good. And he ended up arrested uh, and crucified as a result of his goodness. Uh, and I love the fact that as we think about living with a zeal or a passion for goodness, we are assured that if, in fact, we do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So again, this should alleviate our fears. We may suffer for righteousness' sake, but we will be blessed. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if we're going to face our fears, we must have a passion for that which is Good. And then there should also be this embrace of the preeminence of God's Son. Uh, Peter says, Have no fear of them. And this, this verse has been translated variously over the years. It's a difficult verse to, to translate well. Have no fear of them, I believe, is a good translation. In other words, Peter's saying, Look, these people who make put you to the test, who may harm you or desire evil for you, who, who might mean, as, as Joseph's brothers meant for him, might mean evil for him. Joseph said to his brothers just flat out, you meant what you did for evil. But again, God meant it for good. And, and we can know and understand that same thing. There may be those out there who determine to cause us harm, to, to cause us suffering because of our Faith, But again, in your hearts, he says, honor Christ as Lord, or the Lord, as holy. And again, this, this thought is that Jesus must be first in our life. If you're going to effectively face the fears that will no doubt come your way as you seek to honor the Lord, Christ must be first in your life. Uh, only if Christ is first in your life will we have no fear of them nor be troubled. So again... Jesus says to us through the Apostle Peter, don't be afraid of what others can do to you. Uh, I'm convinced that many people are hesitant to do what God has called them to do, whether it is uh, to preach the gospel, to share your faith with your next door neighbor, uh, to teach a Sunday school class, uh, to go to an elementary school on Thursday afternoons and, and teach the children about the love of God, uh, to allow your child to surrender to the foreign mission field, boy, that strikes fear into the heart of parents, doesn't it? How do we face that fear? Well, we, we, we 
we honor Christ as first, preeminent in our lives. In other words, we, do, we don't fear what others can do to us. We're not intimidated what others may say about us, but we put Christ first. What matters to us most is what does Christ think? What does Christ want? If God has called my son or my daughter into the mission field and, and is sending them to some foreign country that I've never stepped foot in, who should I want to please most, myself? Should I want to please me or those around me who think that that's a, a waste? You know, the father of modern missions. Uh, when he was leaving the seminary to go to the mission field, his professor said, you're going to waste your life on the mission field. You have a brilliant mind. You're a great speaker, teacher. Why go to the, the mission field and waste your life? And yet, that was what God had called him to. Don't be afraid of what others can do to you. Don't be intimidated by, by what others may think of you. But put Christ first. That's what this means. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. We should be more concerned about pleasing Jesus than about pleasing anyone else. We should care more about what Jesus thinks than about what anyone else thinks. He must be first. He most, must be foremost. He must be preeminent in our life. Then we can face our fears effectively. So have no fear of them. Man can't. What's the worst thing that man can do to us? Right? He can kill us, right? But what does that do? It just ushers us into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled, Peter says. And then he says this at the conclusion or at the end of that verse, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So this third concept that we have to have firmly fixed in our minds is that there is some preparation to be made in the life of a Christian. We're to be prepared, all right? And of course, I've entitled this point, The Preparation of the Gospel. What Peter is telling us is that when we live our lives according to the Word of God, being pursuers of, of peace, being zealous for that which is good, blessing those who have sought to, to hurt us, living confident, courageous lives, putting Christ first in everything that we do, people are going to notice. And they may just be compelled to come and ask us a reason why we live the way we live. Always be prepared. Again, you know the Boy Scout motto, right? Be prepared. That should be the motto of every Christian. The ability to, to, to live a hopeful, confident, joyful life in the face of persecution and oppression, again, we'll, we'll cause some to take note and to ask, how can we live such an undisturbed life? That's the idea here. How can you live such an undisturbed life in the midst of this very disturbing world in which we live? How can you do that? And when they ask, we have to be ready to point them to Christ, ready to give them an answer. Peter says it this way, prepared to make a defense. Sounds pretty formal, doesn't it? 
And there's a sense in which this, this word could be used in a formal way. Peter, Paul, others were, were brought before the government officials of their day. Paul very clearly made a defense of the gospel, all right, after his arrest. Uh, others have done the same. There may be those instances when we will be called upon to make such a defense before some formal authority. Most of us probably will never experience anything like that. But all of us will probably experience an opportunity on a much more informal basis. We may have a, a family member who questions our faith in the Lord. I can remember when I first became a Christian, many in my family questioned what in the world I thought I was doing. They didn't understand. And they didn't like the changes that I was making in my life. I was called upon early on in my Christian life to make a defense of the faith which I had embraced. All of us need to be ready to do that. Uh, our family, our friends, our co-workers may just ask us one day, how can you be so calm under the current circumstances? How can you be so confident with what's happening in the company these days? Don't you know they're, they're downsizing, that 25 or 30% of us are going to lose our jobs? Why doesn't that bother you? When somebody comes and asks you that question, you must be ready, Peter says, to make a defense, to give them an answer, to point them to Jesus Christ. And it may not be such a kind request. It may be a challenge to your faith. I had one of those early on in my Christian life. A family member called me. She was not happy with me at all. She was not happy about things that I had said to my family. She was not happy about the way that I had chosen to live my life. And I had to make a defense against an angry family member. We need to be ready. And when we do, Peter says that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. You know, sometimes when somebody's attacking us, it's hard to keep our composure, right? But that's why we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared with this defense of the gospel so that we can give an answer to these people with gentleness and respect. There should be a calm confidence in us as we tell others why we are living the life that we're living, why we're able to live in the manner that we're living and again, that word respect or reverence, there should be a, always a reverence for God as we share our faith and a respect for the one to whom we're speaking. It may be somebody that we have to live with down the road, a family member, a friend, a fellow believer, church member. So, Church, there is preparation that must be done. I would love to say, you know, that, that, that the Christian life is just easy, no troubles. We know that's not true. And it's also preparation that must be done. Be able to share the gospel. Be able to share your faith. Be able to share your own personal testimony. Because someday, someone's going to ask you, why do you live the way you live? How can you live that way? We need to be prepared to point them to Jesus at that moment. Having a good conscience is the next phrase there. You know, our conscience is that aspect of our lives that either condemns us 
for something that we've done or commends us for something that we've done that was, that was right. Uh, all of us have a conscience. Peter says we need to have a good conscience. Uh, Paul claimed of his own life that he had a, had a good conscience. So the question is, how can we have a good conscience? And the answer is that a good conscience is the result of living a godly life. So Peter is saying here, you need to live a godly life. In other words, if people are ever going to ask you a reason for the hope that is in you, they're going to have to see you living the kind of life that we would call a godly life. They may not call it a godly life, but they'll know it's a different kind of life than, than what they're living. And it's a, it's a godly life. We need to be able to, to live a godly life so that we can have a good conscience. Again, so that that voice in our head or our heart doesn't condemn us for the way that we're living, but rather commends our actions. So we have to determine to live in such a way that we will know in our hearts that our conduct, publicly and privately, is consistent with the commands of God, which again means that we need to know the commands of God. We need to know God's word. So we, we practice godliness. The Christian life, again, I, I want to stress this, it's not merely theoretical or intellectual. It's a practical life. That's what Peter's saying to us. We should never be satisfied with simply knowing God's word but only be satisfied when we become doers of God's word, right? Isn't that what James teaches us? I want to read this passage from James chapter 1 that we're, again, all familiar with. He simply says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Those who stop with simply knowing God's word, with no intention of ever doing God's word, James says they're deceiving themselves. Peter would agree. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We should desire to so live, to so do this Christian life that we'll be blessed in our doing. We have to practice godliness in order to have a good conscience so that we can share our faith calmly, confidently, effectively with those who ask us a reason for the hope that they see in us. And, and Peter says when we're able to do that, even if you're being slandered, even if someone is speaking bad of you. Matter of fact, the idea here is that they are actually referring to the good things that you're doing for the sake of righteousness and claiming that those actions are evil or bad. That's what he means there about being slandered. Those who revile your good behavior, they'll be put to shame. And, and I believe at this point, Peter kind of points us uh, to the return of Christ, the judgment one day, 
All right? People may not understand why you live the life you're living right now. They may not understand why you do the things you do right now, why you get up and waste your Sunday mornings when you could be out on the golf course or the lake, and yet here you are sitting in a church listening to me. I mean, my goodness, there's got to be a better way to spend Sunday morning than that, right? One day, you'll be vindicated for the way that you've lived your life. Every eye will see Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you were right. You were right to live the way that you lived. You were right to be in church on Sunday mornings. You were right to train up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You were right to concentrate on doing good, preparing to share the gospel. You were right to do that. One day you'll be vindicated and they will be put to shame. And then he makes this statement in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now again, pretty simple thought there, right? It's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. I mean, when we suffer for doing evil, we're just getting what we deserve, right? But when we suffer for doing good, again, that's when Peter says we're blessed because all of this is in accordance to God's will. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. What he's talking about here is the, the providence of God. And I love John Piper's definition of the providence of God. It's simple. He says the providence of God is the purposeful sovereignty of God. In other words, God is in control of your life. God is the one who controls what comes to you and what... what what your life is all about. God's in control of that. God's even in control of those who would revile you and, and accuse you of evil for the very things that you're doing that are good. God's in control of all that. So it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And the implication here is that it might just be God's will. I kind of started with this. Suffering is a part of God's plan for the Christian. We need to embrace that right now. Suffering is a part of God's plan for every Christian. It is purposely, lovingly, and sovereignly allowed for our good and His glory. Romans 8.28 says this. We, we love this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good, church. That's what Paul reminds us and comforts us with. We can trust that. Earlier, Paul had said this in chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. He said that, that Christians are to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. No matter what you may be going through this morning, as Brother Rick shared as we sang these wonderful songs together today, you can know that God is in control, that God has a loving, purposeful reason for where you are this morning. He's doing something good in your life. He's going to work all of these things together for your good. 
Again, I, I mentioned James earlier, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says it this way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me tell you, if there's one thing that I desire as a Christian man, a Christian husband, a Christian father, a pastor... I want to be equipped for whatever comes my way. And James promises, and again, Paul and Peter join in with their amens. It comes from the testing of your faith. It comes as we suffer for the cause of Christ, for the sake of righteousness. It produces steadfastness in us. And when steadfastness is allowed to have its full effect... We become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that about yourself? As far as my relationship to Christ, as far as my calling, as far as what God is doing in and through my life, man, I'm, I am equipped. I've, I've got everything I need. I don't lack anything. And if, and if that's your desire, and I pray that it is, it's going to require you to go through some trials, some suffering, trusting in God, hoping in God, knowing that God is at work in your life. Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7, confidently declares, the psalmist confidently declares this. He says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. That's a pretty confident assertion, right? The Lord is on my side. Can, can you say that this morning? We should be able to say that with absolute confidence, with the same conviction that the psalmist says those words. The Lord's on my side. He's with me. I know who goes before me. I know who goes behind. The Lord's with me. That confidence, that courage is what we need to face our fears. And again, that confidence and courage comes as a result of what the psalmist said in the verse before those verses. Verse 5 he said this, he said, out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. This confident assertion of the Lord being on his side, of enabling him to triumph over his enemies, came as a result of his crying out to the Lord when he was in distress. He wasn't so confident in verse 5. He was in distress, he was suffering, he was struggling but he called on the Lord. The Lord answered him and set him free. You know, the Lord still does that today. And so what I would say to you is this, Christian, if you're struggling, call on the Lord. Trust in him to show you the way, to give you the strength to endure, to get to that blessing that's coming your way because you're suffering for the sake of righteousness. And then let me just say this to anybody who may not have ever experienced this kind of confidence or courage. What you need to do today is call upon the name of the Lord. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never seen yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Him in your distress. Let me tell you, He'll answer you. He'll set you free. He'll save you. And I trust that if you've not done that, you will today.